Good morning, everybody. Well, or yeah, good morning, everybody. Welcome. Today is September 1st, new month. Ding, 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 ding. Welcome to episode number 188 of Simply Cyber's Daily Cyber Threat Briefing. It is Thursday, September 1st, mind you. I'm your host, Dr. Gerald Dozier. And over the next 45 minutes, I'll be delivering the top cybersecurity news stories of the day on what it means to you as a practitioner because i'll be providing my um, expert analysis on all those stories or if you're looking to break into the industry there's going to be good value for you for you period now shout out and thanks to the stream sponsors barricade cyber solutions listen cyber criminals have stolen your company's data and derailed your business operations barricade cyber solutions will help you resolve this ransomware attack and get your business back on track Guys, definitely, if you don't have a plan for handling like a full-blown um, incident on your environment, I'm not talking about a little flare-up. I'm talking full-blown, like, you know, all the hands on deck kind of thing. Go to BarricadeCyber.com. Schedule a, a, like a no-obligation, simple phone call with Eric Taylor and his team and just talk through what would happen if you came to work tomorrow and all the systems were demanding Bitcoin in order to get your access back, Okay. Also want to say shout out and thanks to the stream sponsor. You might see this new this new graphic right here. Recon InfoSec. If your organization is large enough to have real cybersecurity concerns, but maybe not quite large enough to build a full-fledged security operations capability from the ground up, check out the managed detection and response offering, MDR, from Recon InfoSecs. Their offering includes the people, process, and technology needed to deliver full-spectrum security operations to organizations of any size. Guys, MDR is another piece of a great uh, defensive information security program. A lot of businesses that are in the middle ground, like basically one-person shops, matrixed IT, small to mid-sized businesses that can't afford staff, Professional MDR is basically outsourced security operations or outsourced blue team. So uh, Recon Infosex ha has this MDR service. There's a lot of MDR services out there, but you got to be deliberate. I'm actually thinking about putting together a little write-up on how to actually evaluate MDR services, but stay tuned for that. Anyways, thanks Recon Infosec for joining the party and sponsoring the stream. Now, I want to remind you, if you hold professional certifications that require CPEs like CISP, CISA, SISM, Yes, SSP, GAC, PNPT, whatever you want, whatever you got, you need CPEs, we got you covered. Each episode of the Daily Cyber Threat Briefing is worth half a CPE. So it stacks two and a half a week, 10 a month, 30 a quarter, 120 a year. You see where I'm going with this. Be sure to say what's up in chat, hashtag team live, Nick Pertel asking how everyone's doing, Nathan Bolin saying good morning. Just say what's up in chat. It will forensically stamp you as being here. It's the same as roll call or writing your name on the clipboard at the uh, at the front of the room. If you're on replay, hit hashtag team replay. If you're live, love it. I see that's, you know, 55, 60 of us in here already. We're going to get going nicely on a, uh, 10 a.m. on a Thursday morning. I appreciate you being here. For those of you on replay, definitely appreciate you all catching the stream on replay. You got the benefit of time travel, so you can just jump right to whenever this slide right here turns to news and you'll be off and running. Or if you're listening on your audio podcast app of choice, which by the way is getting over 200 downloads a day. So I definitely appreciate that people are um, finding that podcast and 
if it works for your life situation in order to consume this knowledge, then get after it. That's why we do the podcast is to offer you different options to consume this information in a way that benefits you. But if you listen on the podcast, you can jump ahead. But for me, for me and chat for the next two minutes, I am going to be welcoming all of you into chat and saying good morning. So having said all that, good morning, Ms. Julian. Hey, Anthony Singleton. It's been a minute. I hope you're well. Nader, Joe Pereira. Hey, Chip Harris. Saw your uh, uh, news about getting the new job. Congratulations. Happy for you. Renato Lopez. There you are from Hertfordshire, UK. Good to see you over there, guys. Hey, I got to tell you. Oh, what's up, Kuwait? Middle East in the house. Guys, um, my energy level is like, rah, like wide open. I taught at the Citadel this morning. Um, good class. We did Nmap. We went over how kind of internet works, how you can case, not case, but how you can do recon on a target and then go and look up, you know, exploit DB and find uh, exploits that you can use to pop a box. Students loved it. It was a good time. Hey, Matt McDaniel, Stephen Hurst in the house. Stephen Hurst, that CISSP, my friend. Don't forget, you got those uh, CPEs from Daily Cyber Threat Briefing. Yeah, Jeremy Williams. I am 95% better. Thank you. That 5% is like right about here, just kind of tickling in the back of my throat. But I think we're going to be, I think we're going to be okay, guys. You see me at my worst. Jared Pierpoint, thank you so much. Earl W., good to see you. Just Ben, my man. Yes, Munchkin, I teach at the Citadel Military College in the Cyber Sciences Department. You know, it's funny. I don't think any of the students know that I that I do YouTube or, or preach cybersecurity all day, every day. They're just like, oh, my God. Why is this guy so excited about cybersecurity? Ugh. Especially because it's an 8 a.m. class. And if anybody went to college, uh, undergrad, 8 a.m. classes are like the worst, right? Because you don't want to get up or... So the last thing you want to do is have someone like me yelling, not yelling, but like flipping out at you about TCP, UDP, IP, DNS. <laughs> First thing in the morning. Guys, hey, Justin Gold. Good to see you, man. Joshua B. Allison Van Stone, thanks for coming in on LinkedIn. Love it, love it, love it. Guys, got my sounders already. I'm a crypto evangelist. I love it, love it, love it. Love it, absolutely. I'm a little stunned right now. It says 50 viewers on, on YouTube on Simply Cyber. We usually get a better poll than that. Maybe it's because it's the 10 a.m. I don't know. It's all good. Jeremy Williams. It is military school. Yeah. Oh, thanks, amigos. I appreciate that. Arturo, good to see you. Happy Thursday to you too, my friend. Justice Burnell, good morning. Love it, love it. All right, guys. I think I think that's good. Justin Loken in the house. Like it. Guys, I went back through chat yesterday. It looks like you guys prefer the the large um, layout over the small one. So I'll just run with the large one today. See if you guys, um, you know, dig it. And if not, you know, we'll keep working on it. I actually got some feedback from a, a professional in the space who actually thinks that having chat here takes up way too much real estate and that I should figure out a different way to bring chat in. But my concern is if I bring chat in a different way, I'll only be able to bring in Simply Cyber's YouTube chat, which would mean that people like Seth Guthrie, Allison Van Stone, Rebecca Fisher, all these people coming in from LinkedIn would not be part of the chat, which I think is totally uh, uh, exclusionary and discriminatory just, just because the platform you're coming in 
Um, so, I, I don't know. I'm on the fence about it all. We'll, we'll see what's up. Hey, Nancy Fernandez. Good to see you. Joe Senor, my man. Guys, it's Thursday. Let's dig into it. I want to keep it under 45 minutes. Thank you all for being here. It's Cybersecurity Headlines. It's Thursday, September 1st, 2022. Google launches open source bug bounty. Google launched the Open Source Software Vulnerability Rewards Program, catchy name. This will pay up to $31,337 for bugs on open source projects used by Google, things like Angular, Golang, and Fuchsia. That's not too surprising given Google uses that software. However, the money will also apply to third-party dependencies included in those code bases in an effort to improve the overall software supply chain, at least from Google's perspective. Researchers finding bugs in third-party code must first inform the maintainer of that project before reaching out to Google. The bug in the third-party dependency must be directly related to Google's use of that code to receive the bounty. Okay. You know, I appreciate this. Um, this isn't the first time Google's done kind of a bug bounty program. They are targeting open-source software, which has been hot and heavy in the news lately. We actually saw uh, a couple months ago in the Daily Cyber Threat Briefing about how Google, Amazon, Microsoft were actually going to be putting money behind uh, secure open source software. You got to remember, guys, anyone can create an open source um, software repo and start adding to it. Log4Shell was famously uh, found vulnerable recently, and it had been baked into all sorts of stuff. And people were like, how could the developers allow this to happen? I mean, in reality, it's like three guys who maintain it as like a hobby on the side. They have no obligation. Um, I mean, they were doing good work, but they don't have any obligation. There was no written contract between you and, uh, you know, the open source devs and like all of the companies that were basically stealing it, right? Quote unquote, stealing it, quote unquote, um, leveraging it into their own solutions that they would then turn around and sell. Uh, there was no uh, warranty that the code was secure or safe or anything like that. So, uh, in order to attack it head on, instead of trying to do liability and clauses and contracts and stuff, Google is offering and incentivizing people financially to go find bugs in open source software. This is a great step. Um, securing open source software, especially with respect to supply chain, again, because you got to think there's like this little module and then that little module gets brought into a project. That project gets brought in to like a driver. The driver gets brought into an operating system. The operating system gets deployed. And then all of a sudden there's a problem all the way down the supply chain at the original repo that percolates up. That's what happened with Log4Shell. Okay. So good on Google for incentivizing. If there's no incentive, with all due respect, why would anyone be looking at the code in order to find it, right? You need to incentivize them, either offer them money, offer them prestige, offer them a job, offer them something to get them to focus on that. This is like turning a cruise ship around though. It needs to pick up steam. It needs to get going. Of course, Google's only paying on open source repos that they actively use, but they're Google. They're like a Fortune 3 company, a Fortune 5 company. I'm sure they use a lot of open source software. And some of the bigger ones like Angular, Fuchsia, I've never heard of, but Fuchsia, um, they're, they're probably large code bases, which probably has a lot of opportunity for security researchers to find bugs. So I think it's a win for everyone, the security researcher community and open source software, because obviously if a bug is found in a piece of software that Google's using that's open source, it gets fixed. But everybody that's using that open source software gets it fixed as well. So it's a win for everybody. High five. All right. 
Ragnar Locker claims attack on airline. The carrier TAP Air Portugal disclosed that its systems were the target of a cyber attack this week. It claimed it maintained operational integrity and found no evidence attackers accessed customer information. Its app and website were unavailable earlier this week. The Ragnar Locker ransomware group took credit for the attack. It posted a new entry on its leak site, claiming it will provide evidence that it obtained hundreds of gigabytes of data. It also posted a screenshot of a spreadsheet with what appeared to be customer information. Okay. You guys, I mean, we're, we're, we're professionals, okay? We're cybersecurity professionals, so we know this. But, like, any business, I don't care if the business is an airline company, if it's Joel Belton's ice cream shop, if it is ThreatGen, the computer, the video game company, or if it's Microsoft, who makes a million different things, okay? It doesn't matter. Colonial Pipeline with their um, petroleum and energy products. It doesn't matter. You need to understand this. Every business or, or most businesses, they have their product and how the product is manufactured or developed or delivered, like airplanes fly people, right? Thanks, Urson. Love seeing Carl on the stream. Listen, any other, every business has the product, but then they're a business. They need to function. Businesses need certain core critical services in order to function. What do I mean by this? They need HR. They need IT. They need finance and accounting to be able to pay vendors and take payments from customers. They need third-party vendors, like suppliers, to you know, basically help them deliver their product to market. There is a core, they're called, um, oh my God, I, I'm, I'm blanking right now, but InfoSec gets wrapped into this all the time because we're, we're a cost center. That's what it is. We're a cost center. So when you hear about stories like this airline company, whoops, I got mirrored here. This airline company gets ransomware or Colonial Pipeline gets ransomware. You have to separate the two that it's the product or the delivery of the service, the vehicle, whatever, isn't always impacted. In fact, a lot of times it's not. It's the IT, it's the corporate, it's the business piece that was impacted, which is exactly what happened here. Yeah, there was no issue to the Portugal Airlines being able to fly and run routes and everything like that because that wasn't busted. Somebody got in. The Ragnar Locker ransomware got in to the IT. They got a spread, you know, they, they posted a picture of a spreadsheet, right? You know, obviously the company's got access to customer data. They're, they're going to be doing analytics, trying to figure out like, where, where's our most successful routes going? Who's our highest paying clients? Maybe we should send them some extra like drink tickets for free, free drinks or whatever. So just know that a lot of times when these ransomware activities hit, they're hitting the IT infrastructure in some capacity. And then in, in very limited instances, will it be, you know, groundswell catastrophe for the actual product delivery. So a, a perfect example is, uh, Mer Merck, Mersk. I always get it's confused between Merck and Mersk, but the, the, the international conglomerate tra logistics shipping company, when they got hit with not pet, yeah, everything went to hell, everything, their scheduling system, you know, everything that that's an example of catastrophic, but just be mindful. I mean, obviously, obviously you want to protect your organization from ransomware and not just protect it from it happening, but also protect the blast radius of when ransomware detonates in your environment. So kind of contain it, have the ability to recover quickly, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, so I guess I just wanted to point out, yeah, they got hit. It sucks, but it's not like a plane. Like it's not like the planes are fl- like falling out of the sky when Ragnar ra- uh, ransomware hits. Also, just a quick shout out, Ragnar. I haven't heard Ragnar in a while. I don't know anyone else in chat. Uh, like you know, Eric Taylor. I know you work with uh, ransomware quite a bit. I feel like Ragnar kind of has been quiet for a bit. Um, so I mean, interesting to see that they're back. They were kind of a major player. Cloudflare won't terminate services for controversial Thanks, customers. Mersk, Mersk. CEO and co-founder Matthew Prince said the company should not have the power to terminate security services to sites with, quote, despicable content. He compared his company to a telephone provider not terminating service, calling such actions a dangerous precedent. Cloudflare previously cut off services to sites on two occasions. In 2017, it cut off services to the neo-Nazi site Daily Stormer. In 2019, it cut off 8chan. Prince said just because it cut off services in the past doesn't mean, quote, we were right when we did. This comes after some have called for Cloudflare to cut off services to the site Kiwi Farms after users on the site organized a swatting campaign against a transgender activist. Hmm. Okay. All right, so this is kind of, this story does kind of bounce between um, cybersecurity in the fact that Cloudflare is able to disable access you know, eliminate availability of the security objective to certain sites. But this is a bigger geopolitical topic, and it gets much more debatable and philosophical and everything. Yes, you have the ability to do it, but is it appropriate? Now, I don't think anyone, and this happens all the time in these type of arguments, nobody is going to look at like an incredibly despicable, um, like very, very racist or, or very, very just disturbing, disgusting, whatever. Like no one's going to look at a site like that and, and disagree that like that, you know, by and large, that is inappropriate and that shouldn't be accessible. That should be brought down. But it's the gray area. It's like, what if I am like, like what if, what if I believe that vanilla ice cream is absolutely disgusting and disgusting you know, just the mention of vanilla ice cream is completely out of, out of order, out of question. So because I think that, that vanilla ice cream is despicable, that we should terminate it. It, The gray area of who defines what is despicable. It's so subjective. And a lot of times these extreme examples that everybody agrees with is used as the precedent. And then, you know, then you start applying it and applying and applying it. It starts eroding, eroding, and then you get this like whole subjective thing. Cloudflare is a service provider, <clears throat> right? They're not judge, jury, and executioner of what is publicly accessible and publicly appropriate and what's not, right? And that, that's kind of at the, the, the heart of this matter, right? So Cloudflare is saying it probably won't terminate for despicable sites. And you know what? I get it. Like, like swatting uh, transgender people, like being... Um, not prejudice, but um, not it's not racist. Be, being um, the word's not coming to me right now, but being um malicious and just terrible to someone because of something they are. Um, it, it's not okay, right? But like, it, it's not, it's it's not their decision, right? And and another another like just to tr- translate this to another really really popular example to illustrate this that we see all the time or we saw a couple years ago, San Bernardino, right? The, um, 
the, the terrorist shooter guy, the mass shooter, whatever, he had an iPhone and the police couldn't get into it. And they wanted to get into it because they wanted to know what, what the shooter was up to. And if there was more information, maybe there was another target, whatever, right? Very, very, very good reason to want to get into this dude's phone. And the answer was, well, let's put a backdoor encryption mechanism into all iPhones. Let's give law enforcement the ability to punch through because when there's horrible people like this, we need to be able to get in their phone. Well, no one's going to disagree that like, yeah, it would be awesome if there was more people in danger or more people like, you know, chained up in this dude's basement. We want to help those people. But when you introduce the idea of law enforcement to have a back door or for someone some, like in this instance, law enforcement would be making the subjective decision of when they need to access that back door. The same as Cloudflare making subjective decisions on what is despicable. You get this huge gray area where now you start dealing with like, well, to me, we need to get in there. Or to me, that is despicable. Going back to the vanilla example, right? People would fight me all day long. I saw someone in chat say the vanilla is awesome, right? So people are, now you're going to get into like a, a, a pissing match with people. So in order to do it, you know, this is why Cloudflare is saying this. It's the thing is, it's not that Cloudflare is like into hate crimes, right? They're just not into them being the decider on what is appropriate. Now, having said all that, guys, we do need boundaries, right? Or, or, or otherwise, like the entire internet would be like 4chan, right? Like like Facebook, Twitter, all those, like they do have policy around like limits on what is what is okay. But we all agree kind of socially, we make like a social contract with each other on what is what is socially acceptable. Okay, that was a long way to say, what are you talking about, BSEC? Oh my gosh. So I wasn't, I was flipping out, not reading chat. So I'm not sure where this discussion's gone, but here we go. Microsoft details TikTok account hijacking bug. Microsoft discovered the flaw in TikTok's Android app, which opened the door for a one-click account takeover using a malicious link. The vulnerability allowed for bypassing TikTok's deep link verification, forcing the app to load a URL in WebView. This would provide access to WebView's attached JavaScript bridges and grab app functionality to the attackers. This could provide attackers with access to private data or to modify profiles. Microsoft notified TikTok of the issue back in February 2022. Subsequently, they patched the issue. Microsoft does not believe attackers exploited the flaw in the wild. All right. Um, so I, a little confused on this. Um, basically, uh, it's a TikTok Android app bug. The app should be fixed. So the quick, the quick call to action for your end users is if they have TikTok on their app, uh, on their uh, devices, on their Android devices to patch it. This isn't like a malicious Trojanized version of TikTok. This is literally the legit TikTok Android app that had a vulnerability in it that could lead to uh, hijacking. And it had to do with the validation of URLs and links, okay? So just be mindful for your end users to update that. It sounds like it was patched. I don't know if the app automatically patches. I don't know. Um, but... It just goes to show you, I guess, one thing that kind of jumps out right away to me is, um, I'll get a nice little screenshot of some some dark mode IDE console. What jumps out to me is, guys, even TikTok, which is like the number one social media app right now in the world, which obviously has well-funded developers and they do unit testing and case testing and probably um, CICD, so they're constantly rolling out updates and stuff like that. 
even they can have high security vulnerabilities, okay? And again, I say this, I've been saying this a lot lately. This is why vigilance and defense in depth to, to kind of abuse a term that's almost um, hackneyed at this point needs to be implemented. You need, you need, because even the best apps are going to have vulnerabilities. So you have to have kind of levels of defense and, and not just defense, but also levels of resiliency. So when you do get impacted and compromised and stuff like that, not only do you catch it quick, but you quarantine the blast radius. So it just goes to show you. Yeah, I was going to say, jokingly, I was going to say the first order is to uninstall TikTok. But, you know, I got to tell you, the people who design TikTok, they definitely did their research to make it as addictive as possible. So there's a reason it's the number one social media app. And it's just like leaving, leaving all the others in the, uh, in the past. <coughs> Looks like we got another little... Another little graphic here I'm looking at to see if there's anything valuable here um, to show you. Hold on, I'm, I'm reading this. So you go to this, um, this URL. URL goes here, actually takes you there. Yeah, I didn't understand. I don't know if you're doing like uh, URL overwriting, but anyways, has to do with deep links. Sorry, I wish I had more information on this particular one, but I'll have to look at that one. I can't do it off the cuff like that. And now thanks to today's episode sponsor, Code42. Surprise, surprise. Five years from now, Jamie, who's resigning today, will ring the NASDAQ bell officially launching her company on the public market. And what you'll soon realize is that Jamie stole your most valuable data to start her new company. Learn how Code42 Insider can stop data theft and protect your organization's most valuable assets. Visit code42.com slash show me to learn more. All right, before we get into it, I do want to say, um, you know, thank you to all of you as I always do. Real quick, I want to tease this. I'll tease it tomorrow also. Just so you guys know, it is September 1st, so it's a new month. Um, Barricade Cyber Solutions has been sponsoring the show for eight months, and I genuinely appreciate the support that they give the show. Uh, Recon InfoSec has come on as a, an additional supporter. And as part of them coming on next week, so next week, Monday through Friday, I will be raffling off every single day one student voucher to Recon InfoSec's core security operations analyst training. Okay, guys? I'll send you a link to this if you want. ReconInfoSec.com slash training. Core is a four-day... Open range, it combines two of their courses. It's a $3,500 value. Okay, guys, we're raffling five of these off. So next week, I'm raffling off $15,000 worth of uh, of prizes. And I've taken the first, I took the essentials course, the two-day course. It's freaking awesome. I would, I would encourage you, if you want to learn about being a, a SOC analyst, if you want to learn like Velociraptor and Hive and Greylog, and you know os query and all the tools and like how a sock works and how you how you do it or if you work at a sock and you want to be even better at it you'll want to enter this raffle okay this is super legit the training is live you can do it remotely but it's live you're all you're all plugged in you're on a team you're on a sock team and it's september 26th through the 29th if you're unable to make these dates i will work with you and try to get you into the next one. I think they do it quarterly, okay? So definitely come by next week. I will 
um, figure out a way to get Team Replay involved as well. But we will be raffling at least three of these off live during the stream. So you'll want to be here, okay? Thanks to Recon InfoSec for the sponsorship and for the, the um, student voucher donations. Also, guys, uh, exclamation point newsletter and chat. If you're not getting the three CyberPro actionable tasks every Monday morning in your inbox, consider signing up. This is like high value, high impact. You'll get this email Monday morning and you will be able to deliver value to your business before most people have figured out like how to get their coffee. I'm telling you right now, this is huge, huge value. I'm super pumped about this. I've sent out two. I've gotten amazing feedback from everybody so far. I'll be sending the next one out on Monday morning. If you want to get in on it, you have to sign up to get this, okay? All right, let's get back to the news. They're unable to deal with CSAM problem. Internal documents seen by The Verge show that Twitter considered <laughs> launching an OnlyFans-style paid subscription feature for adult content earlier this year. However, when the company assembled a red team to investigate its potential, they reported in April that it couldn't safely operate such a service, as Twitter cannot accurately detect child sexual exploitation and non-consensual nudity at scale. This isn't the first time Twitter knew of its CSAM problem either. Internal documents also show that Twitter's health team issued a report back in February 2021 that its investment in technology to detect this material had not kept up with its exponential growth on the platform. Twitter's moderation tools reportedly cannot verify age of content creators or consumers and have known windows that would let illegal content through. Wow. So the hits keep on coming from Twitter. Um, I will say that, um, okay, so first of all, interesting that Twitter, which I, st I don't think Twitter is profitable um, as of right now. I might be wrong. But Twitter considered setting up an OnlyFans kind of capability within the platform, which has taken it in a whole new direction, right? I mean, I know that they like basically have like a clubhouse style app killer. Uh, I didn't know they were going to go for OnlyFans. I do appreciate that Twitter went ahead. And oh my God, fraud dog. Okay. Wow. Um, can I get a, um, what would be a good, uh... okay. <laughs> All right. So listen. Um, I appreciate that Twitter actually did the due diligence to um, put a red team together and actually as ascertain the business impact and like what this would look like in operations instead of just um, you know being all about the money. Great cash, homie. And and just saying like, oh hey, OnlyFans makes tons of money. Let's do that too, right? I appreciate that, especially because um, the child element, not being able to see if the individuals were uh, under eighteen, if it was inappropriate. Um, all of that type of um, um, kind of abuse, if you will, um, and exploitation. So I'm really, really glad that they didn't do it. I find it interesting, but not surprising that they actually considered doing the OnlyFans thing. I, I do find it interesting, though, that they're, they said that they're unable to track whether or not material is inappropriate or not um, at scale, which would make me believe that they're almost... They're almost doing it manually because what, like why else? I mean, if you were using AI, like AI scales of, so, um, you know, so manual would be kind of crazy. Um, you I mean at this point, honestly, I, I'm kind of confused. Like, yeah. Like, are they able to detect inappropriate material, whether it's adult or, um, underage at this time? 
because I mean, people can still do it, right? I mean, I like I'm I'm streaming to Twitter right now, so I'm putting content out there. I mean, I'm I I do have my clothes on, but um. Anyways, I appreciate that they they did this to and um didn't go forward with it because of this particular problem. So good on them. They could use a little bit of good news after uh the Twitter, <laughs> uh the whistleblower leaks and then um. You know, all, all this other news that's been happening lately. Federal privacy law could force a low bar. Over at Protocol, Hirsch Chikara wrote up a potential problem with the current draft of the American Data Privacy and Protection Act that aims to set a national standard for privacy in the U.S. The latest draft of the legislation makes it clear that no state laws can preempt anything covered under the potential federal law. There are some explicit exemptions for state laws, things like the Biometric Information Privacy Act and California's negligent privacy data breach law, but the bill voids any non-exempted state laws. Most importantly, it prevents any future laws that would shore up privacy at the state level. This comes as California will strengthen its existing privacy laws with the Privacy Rights Act set to go into effect in 2023. Colorado, Connecticut, Virginia, Utah, and Nevada also passed privacy legislation that would be superseded by the federal bill. This means that any technological innovations challenging privacy would be dependent on new federal legislation going forward. Okay, so this is, you know, hey, you know what? We're an equal opportunity cybersecurity show. I love all parts of cybersecurity, including federal policy. The United States has been behind on privacy for a while. If you look at the European Union, they have GDPR and they enforce the crap out of it. They take privacy quite seriously, okay? Privacy is a right to UK citizens, um, European citizens. In the United States, privacy is like a nice to have. It's not really well understood. Some people have like kind of the fifth grade argument that they have nothing to hide. So why, like, what do you have to hide? Why do you need privacy? Um, Different states have, have like, th in the United States, there is a patchwork of privacy law. We desperately could use a federal privacy law, right? So there's like healthcare, federal privacy law and stuff, but there isn't like a universal, like you're a citizen of the United States, you're granted these privacy rights. What they're talking about right here with this federal privacy bill is that basically it would overrule any existing state privacy law. Now, why do you care about this? Well, first of all, we are the United States, right? So I think it's a little bit of an overreach of federal government to overrule state law, but that's a separate argument altogether. But if, if the US government is trying to make a federal law that applies to all states, it's going to be kind of a compromise and a balance of all the state's kind of needs and wants and desires based on the senators and the House representatives, the lawmakers, Congress, right, of states. So you, you might get a watered down or some type of other version of privacy law, which, yes, for states that have nothing, this is great. But for states like California that have been leading the way on privacy rights for a decade plus, right, California is really the front runner as far as defining like what privacy law is in the United States, it is possible that this federal privacy law would actually water down and kind of nerf California's privacy laws, which is not fair to California since they've done all the work and effort and such to define the privacy laws that they as a state feel are appropriate. So that's, that's kind of what the risk is here. Um, 
you know, I'd have to dig into the details to see what's getting cut out and what's not getting cut out. But, you know, with, with this, with these laws, at least in our modern uh, ecosystem, you see a lot of times that uh, federal laws end up, you know, having exceptions for certain specialist groups or certain circumstances um, that may not make sense in all situations. So uh, it gets a little, it's a little unnerving. What I would like to see if I, you know, if I had a wand is let's have a federal law and then that's the baseline for everybody. And then just like a NIST framework where you do tailoring, right? You have your profiles, you have your federal law baseline. And then if a state wants to add on top of certain things to have more security or more expectation for citizens in certain key areas, then go for it. Get buck wild with your privacy laws in your state. But everybody has to have the minimum foundation at the federal law level and then stack things up. Not, this is the law, and if you have more secure, more privacy rights up here, well, too bad, you're a U.S. citizen. It, it gets eroded down here. Okay, that's what I would say about that. Chrome introduces a clipboard flaw. Chrome version 104 introduces a bug that removes standard users' approval to write to the clipboard on websites. Usually sites can only do so through a so-called user gesture, something like Control-C to copy. The bug potentially lets sites send text to the clipboard without that gesture. Chrome developers know of the issue, but it remains available at the time of this writing. While this potentially opens the door to malicious actors putting arbitrary content in the clipboard, Developer Jeff Johnson notes that most browsers implement poor and inadequate safeguards for the clipboard, which can often be written to with common interactions on a page. Okay. So it's interesting. Um, they're saying here that there's a bug that lets people, you know, you go to a website and you, I copy Jess Bishop's comment. I couldn't, I couldn't say it with a straight face. I copy, I copy it. Now it's on my clipboard, which is this piece of memory that's holding it. And then I can go somewhere else and hit control V and paste it. Right. But it's stored in memory somewhere. Now I have to opt in by hitting control C. What they're saying is there's a bug in Chrome where I visit a website and all of a sudden it's able to copy into my clipboard, whatever it wants. Now you might be like, well, Jerry, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is it's not anything if I had, if it pushed Jess Bishop's comment. I couldn't say that with a straight face. It is a big deal if it pushes like 90,000 capital letter A's and does a buffer overflow on the clipboard or on that piece of memory management, right? Like I, I'm being super simplified here, but my point is if you can write to a computer's memory, right? It's possible maybe you have you know, all capital A's until you overflow a buffer, or you have some type of glyphs, something like, um, there was a bug a couple years ago. Um, God, I can't remember what it was exactly called, but like, basically it was like the font library bug, um, G font maybe, or something like that. Anyways, the, the deal is that like the font rendering engine couldn't parse it the right way if you did it a, a certain way. Right. So it's not about the fact that it could copy and overwrite your clipboard or something like that. It's much more that what could get copied in there could actually allow for arbitrary code execution. And oh, by the way, all it requires you to do is visit the website. It doesn't require you to do anything else. So that's a real bug and could be really problematic. So make sure, uh, again, like this is interesting from a security researcher perspective and from a nerd perspective, but for end users, Google Chrome is 
I think the most popular used browser right now, uh, you know, in society. So you want to make sure that people stay up to date on their Google Chrome, um, on their Google Chrome applications. That's another thing, like for end users and stuff like that. Guys, I know we we talk about, or at least in the GRC Analyst Masterclass, I say, hey, you know, make sure you send out weekly emails, make it nice and clean and easy for end users to understand. Maybe tell them to tell their their family and loved ones to update their Google Chrome. Every once in a while, it's nice to use some of these skills that you've developed and actually make like a 10 second video of like, I mean, you could cut it together really quickly, but like open Chrome, go over to the three dots, click it, see the update Chrome, hit the update Chrome, watch the thing, right? Like make like almost like a TikTok reel if you want, but show them exactly how to update it because sometimes you're like, update your Google Chrome and you know, Carl, Carl's like, uh, I don't know how to update Google Chrome. Next email, right? Like you need to enable people to take the action that you're asking them to take, right? If you tell them it's bad and that they need to do it, they're motivated, but they may not be motivated enough to Google, how do I update my Google Chrome, right? So lead them as far and as, I mean, lead them as close to the watering hole as you can. Lead them to the watering hole, put your hand on the back of their neck and push their head down, not under the water, just to the water right? Make it as easy as it is for them to take the action that you're asking them to do. Definitely don't put their head under the water, guys. UK sets out new cybersecurity rules for telcos. The UK government set out changes to the draft of its new security framework for the telecommunications industry. These rules will go into effect in October 2022, with compliance required by March 2024. Up until now, telcos in the country set their own security standards. Under the new framework, these organizations must identify risks to any edge equipment exposed to attacks, keep controls in place for who can make network-wide changes, and make sure business processes support security. The UK's Ofcom regulator can issue fines of up to 10% of annual turnover for non-compliance. Wow. Thanks for listening. Way to go, UK. I'll tell you what, if this was a US-based legislation, this would be the um, in the newsletter for peers. Okay, telecom providers are going to be required, I think by law, to do the following. Assess any edge equipment, so anything that's kind of uh, internet facing. Keep tight control. By the way, like, could that be more subjective? Tight control, what does that mean? Okay. Anyways, this means basically like uh, privileged access control for people making network changes. Protect against malicious signaling. Okay, so basically prevent beaconing out. Have a good understanding of risks facing their network. All right, so do, join in the daily cyber threat briefing every every day. will help you get a good understanding. A lot, like with all due respect, this is all good stuff. But if they're going to make this federal law and actually charge you one hundred sixteen thousand dollars a day in fines if you fail to meet the duty. Here's the idea, guys. Listen to this. This is great. By the way, if you're in the UK, you definitely should be paying attention, okay? I work at a telco. My boss definitely doesn't want us to get fined $116,000 a day. This is all super subjective. Identify and assess the risk. Okay, so I'm just going to do monitor.shoden.io. Done. Tight control. Nah. We'll do uh, like local access to network devices only. Done. Protect against malicious signaling. All right, we have Splunk with an alert set for beaconing for Cobalt Strike. 
Good understanding of risks. Super subjective. I do the daily threat briefing. Make sure business processes are supporting security. We have a CISO. Okay. In like five seconds, I just did all those and I don't even have a company yet. Like I'm, I'm wicked fictitious. And I think for like probably on the cheap for a couple hundred bucks a month, I, I just, I just avoided $116,000 a day fine. So this is a really great idea, but in practice, you can pencil whip the crap out of this. And by the way, pencil whipping is a term that means you can write it down and document in a certain way to illustrate that you're doing what's required without actually doing anything. Okay. I mean, obviously you have to go to the daily threat briefing. You have to have local access to network devices and stuff like that. But, but my point is this, I don't know how much this is really, uh, going to change the calculus for what people are doing over in the UK. All right. I think that's to today's cybersecurity headline. All right. We are at, we're at 1045. So I'll be really quick because, um, I told you guys, I promise you I'd, I'd keep the shows to 45 minutes. So just a quick shout out later today at 4:30 PM Eastern standard time, we will be welcoming Matt Keeley, author of practical malware analysis training over at TCM Academy, AKA Husky hacks on Twitter. Really cool guy. He works at SimSpace. He's an advanced principal security researcher and red team operator. And he knows malware analysis. This dude is a walking cybersecurity like resource, right? I don't know how else to put it. Really cool dude. We're going to have a great conversation with him. Love it, love it, love it. If you guys do, I should have asked you this earlier. I'm going to start asking you guys uh, early on in the show to hit the like button. I, I did some research yesterday. Apparently, if a bunch of people hit the like button, don't do it now. It doesn't matter. If a bunch of people hit a like button on a live stream, YouTube's like, oh, people really like this. And it starts blasting it to other people who log into the platform. So we'll give that a shot. But I hope to see you at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time later today. Guys, I hope you had a good time today. Sorry I went a minute over. All about good times. Be good. Do good stuff. Sign up for the newsletter if you haven't already. Win the raffle next week if you can. Thanks to Barricade Cyber and Recon InfoSec for the sponsorships. We'll see you guys at 4.30. Take care, everybody.